Speaking of elders and deacons, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and uh, I want to say that uh, we started a, uh, a series a couple of weeks ago called Here We Stand. So if you're a guest here today, you've got to understand that this is a little bit in-house. Uh, however, the topic today uh, crosses all churches and... To be honest with you, you might find yourself a little bit challenged or maybe even offended. Uh, so just hear us out, please, and, uh, uh, because there are some emotions involved with this particular topic, surprisingly so, but, but nonetheless, that's true. I also want to say that uh, there's a lot here. You know, if you can look on your handout there, there's a lot of verses. We're not going to go over all of them, but... To be honest, I may go a little long. I'll try. I got the stopwatch going right now, and hopefully, I'll look at it at some point. Uh, I always seem to forget that. Uh, let me get started here. Let's pray first. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that I have to be here today, and and I pray, Lord, that you would help the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth to be acceptable in your sight. And we just pray that you would bring understanding of how you have modeled for us a church should function. We give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, most folks from this church have come from other churches. Um, and you might have noticed that there's something different about lion and lamb. Uh, our church signs outside are missing something that a lot of churches have. Um, and I, our hope is that by the end of this morning, you will not only know how our leadership structure works, but more importantly, why. Okay? Think for yourself. When you think about a church by name, aside from the building, which is not the church, okay, what do you think of first? Isn't it that one single person, that pastor, that minister, or that priest? Does that kind of instinctively you know, come to mind? Well, who is that? Okay, well, that concept is so much a part of our church culture that it's got to be a command or the clear example of Scripture. So believe it or not, Kent Benson is going to get a little interactive here. All right? And I want all of you who have Bibles with concordances, or if you've got one of those devices where you can look up words, I want you to look up all the verses in the New Testament where pastors are the single authority in a church, or ruling over a church. And then we'll get back to it a little bit later. I'll give you some time. Brief history here, not at the beginning, but after the death of the apostles. Okay? The Jewish priesthood structure and Roman concepts of power started to creep back into the church, evolving into a priest-laity distinction and a hierarchy, which eventually made the church more of an institution. However, from the beginning, it was not so. Today... There are probably as many church structures as there are churches, okay? Everybody's a little bit different. 
But I want to talk about three broad categories. First would be the one I just referred to, the military chain of command hierarchical type, where you've got one person at the top and then ever-expanding layers of, of uh, below that. Okay? Classic example would be the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? But however, some Protestant denominations operate that way as well. On the other end of the spectrum, we've got the little chapel on the hill in the country, where one guy, or maybe one gal, is the sole authority and, frankly, does everything. Okay? Now, in between where a lot of churches park, you may have a board that operates in, in authority over the church, uh, much like a business would. And the pastor is the CEO. And maybe he's just a figurehead, or maybe he's in actual control to some extent. The common thread of each of these forms is that one person is at the head, either figuratively or in actuality. Make sense? Lion and lamb is none of the above. Okay? We, in lion and lamb, try to the best of our ability to apply the Bible to all facets of life, and that includes church structure. We're not picking a fight with other structures. I have many, many friends who are pastors of churches. I have many, many more friends, good friends, who are operating and attending and members of pastor-led churches. So you've got to listen to the whole message to kind of hear what I'm talking about. What we're trying to do in our own imperfection is apply the Word of God the best we can. But secondly, we actually believe that our form of leadership works better for a number of reasons. So, we're going to turn now, I think, on your outline to the biblical basis for plurality of elders. Um, first of all, Paul said to Titus in Titus 1, starting at verse 8, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint a pastor? No. Elders, plural, in every city as I commanded you. Then he goes on and he gives the qualifications for an elder. If you look at the next, I think, point there, it's the examples that we see in Scripture are multitudinous. All those are examples where elders, plural, are in charge of the churches. I want you to be good Bereans. I want you to look this stuff up on your own and figure it out for yourself. So there's the references. Some pastors today say that we have a pastor-led church because it's the Moses model. You know, Moses was the leader of all the people, and he had elders as his assistants. Think about that. Moses is kind of a unique person in biblical history, isn't he? When did that happen again? Okay. Another important reason that we have chosen the form of leadership that we have is because plurality of leadership promotes the true nature of the church. The church is first a family. Uh, the metaphorical use of family language predominates the New Testament. The words brothers and sisters appear over 250 times in the New Testament. 
every ch the early church, they met in homes, they shared materially, they ate together, they were affectionate and hospitable, and they cared for the vulnerable, the widows and the orphans. Uh, they disciplined errant members. Finally, Jesus himself cautioned, do not be called rabbi or teacher, for one is your teacher, referring to himself. And you are all brothers. Secondly, the church, according to the Bible, is a non-clerical community. The distinguishing mark of Christianity is not hierarchy, but that the Holy Spirit dwells in ordinary people, and they, all believers, become witnesses to the world. Every member, every one of you who's a believer in here is a saint, a priest, a gifted member of the body of Christ. There is no priest-laity distinction in the Bible, no sacred-secular distinction in the Bible. Peter points this out in 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 5, where he says, You, all you believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him that calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Next, the church is a humble servant community. If love and humility and servanthood are to dominate the church culture, its leaders must provide that example. And plurality of leadership requires, requires that spirit, much more so than a one-man rule. Now, I'm not saying that, that senior pastors can't do a good job of keeping everybody in harmony and, and that sort of thing. There are better and worse examples of, of pastors. Uh, I think you all know that from your own experience. But a council of leaders of necessity has got to, they've got to listen to one another. They've got to respect one another. They've got to submit to and patiently wait for one another. They've got to consider the views of one another and the interests and defer to one another. At the same time, when you're in a council of equals, you've got to understand and be patient. You've got to look out for pride and immaturity and lack of love and prayerlessness and misunderstandings. But through mutual accountability, weak or even blind spots can be addressed rather than being hidden under a dominant persona. Okay? Because a lot of times, senior pastors are very, very gifted and tend to be dominant. Not all. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to cast everybody in the same category here, but that's a, that's a problem, a weakness. Finally, the church is under Christ's headship. As the chief shepherd, Christ is the only sole pastor. And you see the references there. Elders are his under-shepherds. Now, let's get back to my question for research. How many passages did you find where the pastor leads the church. Peggy? Peggy just said she found none where the pastor's leading the church, and she found one where the word pastor is used, right? Ephesians 4. Wait a minute now, this is our culture. We always have a senior pastor. Right? Thank you, Peggy. <laughs> uh, 
Ephesians 4. Listen to this in context. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Skipping ahead to verse 11. And he, Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now you might say that describes a pastor. And you'd be right. But the context here is not heading or ruling a church. It's in a gift. The gift of pastoring. Uh, The word translated pastor in Ephesians 4 is found in other places in the Bible. But in most versions, it's translated as shepherd. Either literally a shepherd, as those that went to visit the Christ child, or as a spiritual shepherd. The word for, uh, for elder, presbyteros, is found likewise in a number of places in two senses. It can mean an older person, or it can mean a ruler in, within the church context. You, actually, in 1 Timothy 5, you see both. Some people have misunderstood this, this, uh, this, uh, this passage. It says, uh, Rebuke not an elder. Believe it or not, that's not church elders. Because if you read it in context, it says, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brothers, the elder, presbyteros, women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Clearly, older is the context there. Just a few verses later, in verse 17, it says, let the elders, presbyteros, that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Okay? Two different uses of the same Greek word. Now, got a question for you. When you've been in a conversation, which I'm sure most of you had, and the the question comes up, well, where do you go to church? And you say, well, lion and lamb. Of course, after they scratch their head and wonder, where's that? You can actually tell them now. But the next question often is, well, who is your pastor? Right? Be common. Who's your pastor? Don't raise your hands. How many of you have said in response to that question, Mike Halpin? Okay? How many of you have asked Mike Halpin who the pastor of Lion and Lamb is? Okay? You might be surprised. Now, let me be quick to add. There is nothing wrong with the word pastor. Uh, but we at Lion and Lamb look at it as more of a gift than an office. The problem with the term the pastor is the connotation that that person is at the top of a hierarchy. That's the only problem with it when you use that word. You haven't committed heresy by calling Mike a pastor or any other elder a pastor because they're all shepherds. One thing that I, when people ask, well, what are you? I say, well, I'm one of the elders or one of the pastor elders at Lion and Lamb Church. Uh, now, when you say that, I need to caution you, as I did before, this is a highly emotional issue with some people because it's so ingrained in our culture. Uh, some people have said that 
Lion and Lamb, it's a great place. You've know, got great fellowship, great worship, great teaching. Uh, but they don't come back because we don't have a senior pastor. They cannot reconcile the two. Uh, many Protestants have to have a single or head pastor or an ordained minister. In essence, they would never say this, but they're, what they're really looking for is a Protestant priest. On the other hand, plural, plural elders are the norm and the clear teaching of the Bible for local church government. Paul, and for that matter, Peter, whose position the Pope is in today, never ordained a priest. Only councils of elders. Moving on your, your, your hand out there, we're going to move on to shared leadership. What is shared leadership? It is a biblically qualified council of men that jointly pastors the body. Well, what's the New Testament model? They started off with 12 apostles, and then they needed help, so they got seven deacons. And then you see the references there on your study sheet about many, many other references to multiple leadership. Now, a note here. Many Protestants tend to accept multiple deacons, frankly, as groundskeepers. Okay? But they react to the concept of multiple elders. Now, I want to be clear here. Our deacons are not groundskeepers. Okay? They do some of that practical stuff, but they participate fully in most of the decisions related to church government. Uh, we at our meetings, we, sometimes when we get together, we will split up and cover different issues, and the elders dealing with some of the doctrinal and teaching issues, and perhaps the, el- the deacons dealing with some of the more practical issues. But we spend most of our time going through those same issues, one with another, and making sure we're, that we're always on the same page. Uh, at times, we disagree. But I would have to say, honestly, and I think if you ask any other church leader in here, we have a wonderful commonality and fellowship together. We listen to one another and uh, we are, I think, you know, completely in harmony. Even though we can disagree and talk to one another about certain issues. Um, There is, uh, there are benefits and uh, and weaknesses to this whole thing. We, We tend to think of ourselves as being a collective or corporate or collegiate leadership uh, the, uh, the benefits would be that we can balance each other's weaknesses. We can temper harsh judgments. We can correct doctrinal imbalances. Uh, we can share the workload with individual strengths. We can provide accountability for one another. We can give each other breaks. You know, it's not easy. And it's important that leaders not burn out. And so uh, deacons and elders have taken time off you know, uh, consistently. Sean's done it, and, and uh, uh, to some extent, Bart and, and Mike, or I mean, uh, Bill are doing it right now. Uh, that's fine. That's the advantage of multiple leaders, as we can spell each other. There are downsides, as there would be in anybody that doesn't have a, somebody at the top. It can be a sometimes slow and aggravating process. Uh, it requires patience, prayer, wisdom, self-control, humility, trust, love, and respect. For one another. Uh, and we can get bogged down. Without good management, we can 
you know, become stagnant. So we try to keep moving. Now, I know that there's some dissonance in some of your minds, given what you know about lion and lamb and uh, how things have gone, particularly if you've been here for a while. Let me give you something that may help in understanding this, because it can be confusing. There's a concept that is not a biblical phrase, but I believe that it is exemplified in the Trinity, as Steve taught last week, in marriage and in leadership. Uh, In 1 Timothy 5, we've already covered this passage, it says, the elders who rule well are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So the concept that we have here is that we have equal authority and responsibility as elders, but we're not equally gifted, knowledgeable. We don't have the same ex- experiences. So the, but these differences are functional, not formal. Examples. If you look at the apostles, you'll see that Peter, James, and John were the most prominent. They stood out. They seemed to be the leaders. And what we would do is we would call them first among equals. And among that group, Peter clearly stood out. He was the most vocal. And so he would be the first, first singular among equals, at least in our way of looking at things. Uh, But the rest of the apostles were not Peter's staff. You don't find any situation where Peter's in charge of everybody. They worked together. Um, Now, speaking of Mike, we can talk about him because he's not here today. All right? Uh, We got to admit, and this is where your dissonance comes in, Mike started Lion Lamb with some of the others who were here. He is clearly the most gifted in teaching and pastoring. Uh, He's got certain gifts that some of us simply don't have, at least not to the extent that he does. And we've actually recognized that because he's in full-time ministry. We support Mike and Kathy. However, Mike has the humility to consider himself and act as an equal. He does not desire the full weight to be of this body to be on his shoulders. He does not desire to teach every Sunday. That's why you're stuck with me today. Okay. Uh, therefore, the elders and the deacons of Lion and Lamb consider Mike to be first, but among equals. Okay, he doesn't even run the meetings. Okay? But he has certain gifts that the rest of us don't, at least not to the, the degree that he does. He has no more authority than any other elder or deacon. Let's move on to that very issue, pastoral leadership. Uh, there are four responsibilities, four responsibilities of an elder found in Scripture. One is to protect, and in Acts 20, it says, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And later on it says, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you 
overseers, another word for elder, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, uh, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. So elders have to be ready to correct a doctrinal uh, error. They've got to seek out the lost and the straying sheep. They've got to be spiritually alert. Secondly, elders have to be ready to feed the flock. And that's with the Word of God. I think we all understand that. They've got to be willing and able to uh, lead. Okay? For, that starts with their own homes. We'll get back into that a little bit later. And they've got to be able to care for the flock. That means looking out for sick and, and straying members, new people. Uh, looking out even after the difficult sheep. Comforting the grieving, uh, providing counsel to the sheep in transition, whether it's marital difficulties or sickness or, or death. Uh, we've encouraged everybody here to, uh, to get into small groups and, and uh, continue to do that because that's one of the ways that you can stay connected. Mike mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we're trying to form kind of, for lack of a better term, shepherd groups where everybody who's a member of Lion and Lamb, is kind of under the umbrella of a, an elder, not for purposes of control or anything like that, but for accountability, to know what's going on. Uh, Mike used the word soon. I'm going to say, please be patient. Okay, We're doing the best that we can in getting that implemented, but that's where we want to go so that we can really fulfill the responsibilities of shepherds. Uh, that's what we're trying to do. Um, however... Understand that elders and deacons are thankfully not alone. Ministry is the work of the whole body. Elders and deacons depend on the gifts and abilities and skills of others who are more gifted than we are in ministry. We need everybody involved. I urge you to go back and listen to portions of the Reach Out series from 2012 2013. Uh, Larry's going to speak next week on the whole issue of serving, including you guys. Uh, so very, very important to understand we're all in this together. We're not a one-man show or a 12-man show or anything like that. We are all to minister. I want to move on now to qualified leadership uh, on your outline. Uh, i got to say this has been my experience. I've been in some very good churches. So this is not universally true at all, but I... In, in hearing about stories in other churches, I think that it's true that the church in general, including church leadership out there, is oblivious to the qualifications for leadership. Um, why? Because they, the pastor needs help. He's got to have somebody to help him with, with all the many responsibilities he's got. Uh, but the New Testament emphasizes the right kind of men to serve as leaders versus simply faithful attenders, uh, seniors, buddies, rich donors, uh, professionals, and, and, or people with charismatic personalities. Okay, In order for a church to properly function, Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 3 what an elder and a deacon, as he says, must be. We're not going to go through these through these in detail, we simply don't have time. But I'm just going to mention them as I can here. 
First of all, these are divided up into kind of different categories. The first are the moral and the spiritual character of the person. He has to be above reproach. And that's defined by the character qualities that follow. He's got to be the husband of one wife, sexually pure. If the marriages of the shepherds fail, the sheep will follow. Uh, He's got to be self-controlled in finances and alcohol and pastoral authorities in order to govern the body got to be spiritually devout, righteous, lovers of the good, hospitable, and morally above reproach in front of non-Christians as models. Got to be gentle, stable, sound-minded, and uncontentious in his relationship skills. Next, we've got the category of abilities. Uh, An elder or a deacon has to be able to manage their own household well. If you cannot manage the little church of the household, how do you manage the greater one? Uh, this biblical grounding, uh, excuse me, excuse me, uh, this does not mean that an elder or deacon is going to have a perfect family. I think you all know that. None of us do. Okay? But we are generally going in the right direction and we've got generally things together, hopefully. But that doesn't mean there aren't going to be bumps in the road. It happens to all of us. Uh, Secondly, uh, an elder has to be an example. Leadership by example is the best form of leadership. Enough said about that. And finally, this is a distinction able to teach or apt to teach. It's a distinction and really the only distinction between elders and deacons. Deacons have to be everything that elders are, except elders have to be apt to teach. Uh, the, The word and the solid doctrine is vital so that these wolves don't come in and corrupt. This starts in the home. Deuteronomy 6 tells us we're all responsible for uh, training up our children in the Word. It continues on in the church, uh, and it, it should become a lifelong personal discipline of daily intake of the Word guided by the Holy Spirit. It does not mean we're all as good as Mike because we're not. Okay, It doesn't even mean that we're great public speakers because we're not. It does mean that we're able to defend the faith and explain the gospel, even if just in a one-on-one situation. Uh, So apt to teach means that we've got the motivation and the ability to articulate those things. A little word here on Bible schools and seminaries. Not a thing wrong with those. In fact, our church supported Steve Green, supporting Matt Wilson right now. You know, and we may do that in the future. That's a good thing. However, we're not buying into the notion that you've got to have a DM, or whatever they call it, after your name to be a leader in the church, because that's not in the Word of God. Somehow that didn't make it the list. Um, But some churches view it as essential. Finally, there's the third category of spirit-given motivation. An elder has to have a desire to care and love the flock. It cannot be seen as a burdensome obligation. So that means that a leader has to balance all the factors of life and determine, count the cost for serving as a a leader. And you've got to avoid burnout again. The desire is always spirit-generated. Qualified leaders are those to whom the spirit has given the necessary motivation and gifts. Now, Let me talk a little bit about the process that we go through at Lion and Lamb to identify and recognize leaders. We encourage all men, all men, to be servant leaders. 
And dads, if you're looking for guidelines for your young men for how they should order their lives, look at the qualifications for elders and deacons. You can't go wrong. So that's something that is applicable across the board. But like you, we are somewhat observant. And we look around and we see men who are already serving the functions as an elder or a deacon without being recognized. So when we identify somebody, we'll invite them into our, our regular meetings just to see if it's a good fit. And frankly, some have said, no, that's, this is not a good fit. And that's good to know. Some have said, at this point in my life, you know, I just can't handle that. That's perfectly acceptable. And we're grateful for their honesty. You know, when I was asked to consider being an elder at TBC, I had no way to do that. I was nowhere, no, in no way was I prepared to take on that responsibility uh, many years ago. So uh, it's important to be honest on both sides. Uh, as we meet together, we will, in our own way, we will examine the qualities that we've talked about with these candidates, so to speak. And when we come to the conclusion that we believe this person is qualified, we will then ask you to examine these candidates and see if they're qualified. We want to know, because we don't know everything. We want to know what you think about these individuals. And so we're going to be doing that with Larry Stewart and Russ Barnell in the next couple of months. And we need to know if there's a problem because we don't want the wrong people in leadership. Uh, Paul has given us uh, there uh, the example in, uh, first of all, in 1 Timothy 3, that they must be publicly examined. Uh, he also lays out this list it's a public list to guide local churches in the selection of leaders and accountability among its leaders. Unfortunately, most churches don't even look at the passages. Finally, when everybody's in agreement, we publicly install them or recognize them as elders and deacons. Okay. The next topic uh, Reminds me of a cartoon that I saw many years ago. I think it might have been the Wittenberg Door. Anybody remember that magazine? Kind of a spoof magazine about Christians. Uh, and it had a, a, a pastor in one of those great big like Presbyterian pulpits. Okay, And he had a full coat of armor on. And he said, today's passage, or today's message, uh, is about 1 Peter 3. Okay? That's the one that talks about wives submitting to their husbands. That's where I'm at right now. Okay, you've got to understand that this is admittedly a culturally unacceptable concept. But, when properly understood, male leadership is part of God's plan for a beautiful complementary relationship. And it can be summed up as equality with difference. Equality with difference. Women are fully equal in personhood, dignity, value. However, they have distinct roles according to the Bible. If you have a concern about this, your argument is not with me, it's with Scripture. Okay? John Piper put it this way. The differences that are, these differences designed by God go well beyond the prerequisites 
for sexual union. They go to the root of our personhood. When we as a culture say there is no difference and we can mix and match and change our roles and even our sex, we are outside God's plan. However, I'd also have to say it is only because of God's plan that women may be excluded from ruling over men. Again, look at the model. There were 12 men appointed as apostles. They selected seven men as deacons. Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. Now, some may say, oh, you know, we have a much more enlightened culture today and Jesus was just conforming to His. Really? The guy that was tortured and crucified for bucking the traditions of his day was conforming? He was a respecter of no man. I would say that um, it is mostly because, not solely, but mostly because of Christianity that women have been lifted to equality with men. That's the point here. Um, the Greco-Roman world certainly did not treat them as equals. Uh, today, if you're concerned about this issue, women, may I suggest you go spend a year living in an, an Islamic country. Okay? We had a young man over recently from another Islamic country uh, who has become a believer. Uh, and uh, he made it clear, he was adamant, women are not equal in his country. But they are here, and that's what he appreciates about America. I, the Bible teaches equality of the sexes and at the same time, gender role distinctions. That's a hard thing for some people to accept. We're going to say right back in that topic when we talk about marriage. This is not a sermon on marriage, but I want to point out a few things. Peter shows this balance of God's design in his roles for male servant leadership and female willing submission resulting in these complementary roles. That is working together. In 1 Peter 3, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. And then he says, Husbands, show your wife honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Pete, or Paul says, uh, teaches wives to submit likewise and respect their husbands, and husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He died. Rather than being a cultural issue, marital headship is the essence of marriage. That's the one thing that's missing from the marriage debate. Now, uh, there is a vital concept in Scripture. It is very important that we understand this and understand it correctly. It's so important that Steve taught about it last week, and I'm going to repeat it this week. And it all comes from 1 Corinthians 11. And there it says, I want you to listen to this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a, of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God the Father. Got that? Now, let's do this in a hierarchy. Can you imagine the list? With God at the top, a great big bolt arrow pointing down to Christ, 
Another big arrow turning down, pointing down to man, and another arrow pointing down to the low woman on the totem pole. You could look at it that way, couldn't you? Unless you read your Bible and think. Think about the relationships at the top. Steve taught about the Trinity. Are they all God? Are they all equal? The three persons of the Trinity? Yet, did Christ not submit to His Father? You understand how that works? Could we not say that the Father is first among equals? Okay? Now, to suggest that this headship principle is saying that women are inferior, by analogy, is the same thing as saying that Christ is inferior to the Father. You get how that doesn't work. Okay? Just grasp that. Because it's not supposed to be a tug of war. We see these same headship roles played out through the analogies of the household in the local church. And uh, in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through uh, 3, 7, I think it's referenced there on your page, Paul teaches male headship in both the family and the household of God. And these two structures, family and the church household, support and reinforce one another. And there in, in 1, Peter, or 1 Timothy 3.15 it says, I write you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Headship in the church does not diminish the importance and necessity of the female role any more than it does in the family. Paul in fact, specifically points out women who contributed greatly to the older church. Now, questions sometimes come up, comes up in churches, may women teach? Okay? Well, let's take a look at what the Word says. First uh, Timothy 2, it says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and, and gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women to profess godliness with good works. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then he interprets that in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Does that answer the question? No. It answers part of the question. Uh, women are commanded to teach in Titus 2. Okay? Particularly younger women. In fact, women are commanded to hold us accountable. We have an example here in the book of Acts where uh, two women, Priscilla and Aquila, actually privately confront the errant Apollos about his doctrinal error. Okay? Now, just so you'll understand... It's because of this clear instruction in Scripture that because elders have to be able to teach uh, and lead men, that that, by logic, means that women cannot serve as elders. I want you to understand, women, I, I hope this is, uh, I don't have to say this, but this is not a crumb I'm trying to throw to you. At Lion and Lamb, we desire, we need women to serve as much as in the family. We do focus 
on calling men out to lead in humble service. Why? Because the Bible says so. That's why we try to put a, a number of men in positions where they can be seen in, in that, are, that are good fits for them. Uh, some people wonder why we have so many different men involved. And it may not be as polished and professional as some other churches, but we believe it's important that men have that opportunity when it fits. Uh, the culture says that men are simply good to bring home the bacon and for reproduction. We call men to a higher standard. But that does not mean we don't ask women to fully participate in a complementary role. I want to end up here with the topic of servant leadership. Uh, and again, Larry's going to talk about your serving next week in particular. Um, after Christ ascended, okay, the apostles implemented the teaching that his Savior left to practice the principles of love, humility, oneness, prayer, trust, forgiveness, and servanthood in the first collective leadership team. Now, there are obviously going to be failures, and that's, what we, that's why we have such things as repentance, confession, and forgiveness. Those concepts of power and rule from the Greco-Roman world infected the early church uh, and made it a powerful and controlling religious hierarchy which persecuted its opposition. We've got to recognize that. Things got out of balance, uh, particularly in about the, the, uh, the uh, fourth century. The threat to servant leadership, you can probably guess, God hates pride. And John Stott, a Bible commentator, has said that pride is the chief occupational hazard of the preacher. So all leaders have to watch for that enemy. In terms of the call to leadership, servant leadership, Christ's persistent teaching lifts up humility, servanthood, and love as essentials for the church. So leaders have to be examples of that. Uh, in Philippians 2, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not, think it re uh, did not regard e equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. That's our call as servant leaders. One last word here about authority. Not a politically correct term. But I want to make a distinction here. You know, to have any kind of an organization, it's kind of hard without authority. You know, if nobody's making any decisions, it's called anarchy. All right? You've got to have somebody with authority. But admittedly, there is a difference between authority and authoritarianism. And when uh, government leaders tell people to do things that violate their conscience, when professors or leaders in academia tell people what they have to believe in order to score well on their tests, or just write it down, when parents abuse their children, they are exercising authoritarianism, not authority. And we are called to recognize or to, to practice 
authority within the body. And, but the question is, how do we exercise authority? And thankfully, Peter gives us the answer. He says in 1 Peter 5, not as lording it over those to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Um, that's what we're hoping to do here. Mike said that uh, as we've been going through this book on biblical eldership, to say that we've been humbled would be a vast understatement because it is a high, high bar that we are called. Um, I think you can understand after some of this, and perhaps if you read some of the passages there on the, on the handout, you'll understand that uh, we have a lot to learn. Please, please pray for your elders and deacons that we would allow the word to, we'd, we'd be able to follow it, that we could carry out our responsibilities with humility and courage, that lion and lamb would be a body in which his members would love their leaders because the leaders protect, feed, lead, and care for them. All for the purpose so that we can be the most effective praise and ministry in and to the Lord. Lord God, we give our praises to you and we want to thank you now for the privilege we have. I pray, Lord, that those who are not sure about what they've just heard, that they would come and talk. Let's have a civil conversation, Lord. And I just pray that you would help all of us as leaders to remain humble, remain in submission to our sole pastor, Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to see why this is so important to us we thank you, Lord, for the, the insight that you've given us here. We do not cast stones at others. We just ask that we be faithful in our practice of what we believe you have told us to do in this area. Thank you, Father, for the, the communion of the saints here. Thank you for the worship we are about to enter into. We pray that it would be sweet to your ears. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.